Radio Telefisheron, we present From Inishkeen to Bagot Street Bridge, a Patrick Kavanagh recital arranged and produced by John Ryan. The readers are Neil Tobin, Pat Laid, Donald McCann, Aideen O'Kelly, Ronnie Walsh, and Pat Laffin. From Inishkeen to Bagot Street Bridge. Patrick Kavanagh's work, both prose and poetry, can best be expressed as three distinct periods. The early or pastoral period, when as a young man he lived and loved among the stony grey hills of his native Monaghan. The middle or urban period, when he discovered the cities and could look back, if not with anger, with disillusion on his rural youth, with all the wisdom of hindsight. And the third and final period, born on a day sometime during the summer of 1955 on the banks of the Grand Canal, where he let the waters lap idly on the shores of his mind and discovered that his purpose was to have no purpose. The work of all three periods was valid to the poet writing at the time. The later poet might reject the beliefs of the earlier one, while the earlier one might in turn disagree with the notions of the later one. What is clear is that at all stages the poet was expressing, within the mercy of his means, the truth as he knew it then, and expressing it as only truth should be expressed, memorably. But. To begin at the beginning, we're in the townland of Mucker, near the village of Inishkeen, in the county of Monaghan. It is early spring in the year 1933. Now leave the check rein slack. The seed is flying far today. The seed like stars against the black eternity of April clay. This seed is potent as the seed of knowledge in the Hebrew book, so drive your horses in the creed of God the Father as a stook. Forget the men on Brady's hill, forget what Brady's boy may say, for destiny will not fulfil unless you let the harrow play. Forget the worm's opinion, too, of hooves and pointed harrow pins, for you are driving your horses through the mist where Genesis begins. He describes Shankadoff and the hungry hills that scarce would physic a snipe. My black hills have never seen the sun rising. Eternally they look north towards Armagh. Lot's wife would not be salt if she had been incurious as my black hills that are happy when dawn whitens Glass Drummond Chapel. My hills hoard the bright shillings of March while the sun searches in every pocket. They are my Alps, and I have climbed the Matterhorn with a sheaf of hay for three perishing calves in the field under the big forth of Rock Savage. The sleety winds fondle the rushy beards of Shankadoff, while the cattle drovers, sheltering in the Featherna bush, look up and say, who owns them hungry hills that the water hen and snipe must have forsaken? A poet? And then be heavens he must be poor. I hear, and is my heart not badly shaken? Let us pause with him here for a moment on the Inneskeen Road on a July evening. The bicycles go by in twos and threes. There's a dance in Billy Brennan's barn tonight. And there's the half-talk code of mysteries and the wink and elbow language of delight. Half past eight, and there's not a spot upon a mile of road. No shadow thrown that might turn out a man or woman. Not a footfall tapping secrecies of stone. 
I have what every poet hates in spite of all the solemn talk of contemplation. Oh, Alexander Selkirk knew the plight of being king and government and nation. A road, a mile of kingdom, I am king of banks and stones and every blooming thing. There is no chronological order in the sequence of the pastoral poems. Years later, he can inhabit the body of the young farmer and once more stalk the road to Dundalk with Kerr's ass. We borrowed the loan of Kerr's big ass to go to Dundalk with butter. Brought him home the evening before the market and exiled that night in Mucker. We healed up the cart before the door. We took the harness inside. The straw-stuffed straddle, the broken breeching, with bits of bull-wire tied, the winkers that had no choke-band, the collar and the reins. In Ealing Broadway, London town, I named their several names. Until a world comes to life, morning, the silent bog, and the god of imagination waking in a mucker fog. Kavanagh, to quote himself, was humble enough to claim that Terry Flynn is not only the best but the only authentic account of life as it was lived in rural Ireland in this century. It's not an idle claim. A self-contained extract from Terry Flynn would perhaps be too long for our purposes here tonight, but here is a fine example of his evocative powers from an earlier piece. I went to the fair of Carrick Macross to buy some calves. Although this fair is the usual small town fair, I went with some excitement for it was here I spent many a young day. It dawned on me, as soon as I had paid over the money for two calves, that I'd been stuck. You see, there are two ways of buying cattle. One of them is the ordinary way that men who know their business observe. The manner I adopted was to wait till I saw a bargain nearly completed and during a lapse in the hand-clapping to step in and quietly whisper to the seller that I would give him what he was finally asking. This method is liable to get a man a blow of a ash plant on the skull. The man who was selling the calves was a typical, sharp-faced, long-nosed, small Monaghan farmer. He must have seen me coming. Around him and his two heifers was a knot of buyers, as I imagined, and the deal was progressing thus. I give you 28 for them two. I'll not take down 30 today. I could get it coming in the road, clear to pocket at that. The seller made a dash with his plant through a crowd of cattle to keep his own from getting upset or removed from the high position on which they stood for strategic reasons. Then he resumed his original posture on the street and grumbled to a neighbour something about his losing four quid be bringing the bastes to Carrick. Aye, I was offered the 31 all up. Will you get it again? For you have the nicest wee stuff at the fair, eh? A grand pair of colourly calves. I liked the calves myself. There were two heifers of 15 months or so, well fit to put in the winter without needing a warm drink. I'm afraid I rather coveted them, and more especially as I saw the other buyers so anxious for them. Peter! Peter, come here! You'll what? divide that last two pound booty and make it a deal. The seller swished his ash plant in space. I stood as indifferently as I could apart, pretending to look poetically at the broken paling on the side of the sloping guttery bank. I suspected that these men might be aware of my profession and I must play the part. The road was muddy and the November sky had that cold, watery appearance which demands a drink of whiskey. I'll give you 29 and not a penny more. 
Down, tot, it'll not be sold today. Well, that's no use to me, Peter. You know that them's none of your hoosie calves that you'd need to be given a bucket every day to keep them alive. The commotion ceased and I found myself face to face with the buyer the others had left. I'll give you the 30, I said simply. It is no theatrical exaggeration to say that that grey-faced, long-nosed fella nearly fainted. I paid him out the money, six fivers, which he handed to a neighbour to count before putting it in his long, rag purse with a drawstring. You'll give me a look, Penny, says I. Oh, I will, and welcome. And he spat on a half-crown as he handed it to me. This all sounds stage Irish, but it is the bare, understated truth. Manners haven't changed a lot since I first went to a fair. I casually inquired of the man as to where he came from, and he told me a place on the road from Carrickmacross to Cross Midland. Then I knew that I had been stuck, for although the rhyme which tells of the many rogues to be found on this road is something of a slander, there is still some truth in it. For between Carrickmacross and Cross Midland, you'll meet more rogues of Dale and men than anywhere else I know. Here the farms are small and the land poor, and nearly every man is a dealer in something. Since the cross-border smuggling began in earnest, many of these small dealers have become small capitalists, and ass-dealers whom I knew a few years ago are now in a big way of business. Maybe you'd buy a couple more. Said a fella who had heard the first deal. I have a pair of good ones there. And he pointed to two little beasts that you'd think could tell fortunes so old-fashioned they looked. Those pair of calves evoked for me the little angular hills of South Monaghan. I was no longer interested, for I had a queer feeling... Like many men are said to have the day after they get married, that I'd made a bad bargain. I told the long-nosed fellow to drive my pair of calves out of the town while I followed at a safe distance, as I still realised that my dealing methods entitled me to the ash plant. As I watched the calves being driven through the crowded fair, they seemed to get smaller and uglier, and I noticed that one of them had a cough. However, I was not too dissatisfied, when I thought of the inflation of sterling. And if the animals lived, they would be worth the money sometime. A little fella, who is what they call a tangler, a neighbour of my own, met me outside the town. A tangler is another name for a blocker, and if that's still a puzzle, a blocker is a small, crooked, dealing man who helps to make bargains. This fella was an intimate acquaintance of my childhood, and was the two ends of a trickster, if ever there was one. He was a little fella, with a brown complexion and as much loose skin on his neck as would go round it several times. He examined the calves. How much did you waste on them, lads? How much do you think? The tangler considered a moment. Mm. You have a ten-pound base there and a nine-ten. Did you give more than that for them? I didn't want to tell too big a lie, so I said I gave twenty-five. The tangler gasped as he walked round the calves. Twenty-five? Oh, by this, Paddy, what were you thinking about? You bought colour all the same. Hmm, twenty-five, twenty-five. You wouldn't be selling that big one. I could let you out on that one. Driving the calves home, I was not unhappy. It was a clear, frosty evening, and as I talked to the homing folk, I had recovered my childhood. Darkness was falling as I arrived near home. A girl passed on her way from the town, and I thought of those lovely ballad lines. And then she went homeward with one star awake, as the swan in the evening moves over the lake. And one star was awake for me. It shone over Drum the Gorilla, 
and it was the star of my childhood's memory. He was much given to the sport of Gaelic football in those days, and here he remembers a mighty game. Go on now, Mickey. Good job, man. Bog into him. A football match is in progress in my imagination, and I must admit that I am not a spectator, but in there, ploughing all around me, making myself famous in the parish as a man that never cowed, even at the risk of a broken neck. Ah, oh, Cavan at a dirty idiot. How could he be an idiot and him a poet? One of our supporters replied, and my traducer had no comeback. The battle raged up and down the stony field. The team we were playing was a disgusting class of a team who used every form of psychological warfare. For instance, when one of them was knocked down, he rolled on the ground and bawled like a bull a gelding. And then there was the time when I put the ball over the goal line and a most useful non-playing member of the opposing team kicked it back into play. We argued... And there was the normal row. The referee came up and interviewed the non-playing member of the opposition, and that man replied, I never even saw the ball. Well, do you think you'd tell a lie on me at Holy Communion this morning? What could we say to that? Of course, we had our own methods. We never finished a game if towards the end we were abating. We always found an excuse to rise a row and get the field invaded. Ah, oh, them was the times. For one year, I was virtual dictator of that team, being captain of the team and secretary and treasurer of the club. There was no means of checking up on my cash, which gave rise to a lot of ill-founded suspicion. I remember I kept the money in an attache case under my bed. It's possible that every so often I visited it for the price of a packet of cigarettes, but nothing serious. I once went as the club's representative to the county board. We had to defend ourselves from a protest against us being awarded a certain game on the grounds that the list of players wasn't on watermarked Irish paper. I pointed out that the list was written on the inside of a large player packet and that players' packets were made in Ireland. But this did not impress. Nothing, I said, impressed, as I hadn't the clichés off. It took a good deal of conspiring to depose me from my dictatorial post... Members of the team met in secret groups to know what could be done, but as I got wind of the conspiracy, I fired every man of them. In the end, they got rid of me, but it was a job. The man responsible for my deposition was a huge fella, a blacksmith, sort of Hindenburg, whose word carried weight. He was a great master of the cliché. But sometimes he broke into originality, as when the time we were going for the county final, he wouldn't let us touch a ball for a week previous, as he wanted us to be ball-hungry. Ball-hungry, as we may have been, we lost the match. And I was blamed, for I was in the sticks and let a ball roll through my legs. Go home and put an apron on you. Me old mother would make a better goal, you. Somebody has said that no man can adequately describe Irish life who ignores the Gaelic Athletic Association, which is true, in a way, for football runs women a hard race as a topic for conversation. The popular newspapers has driven out the football ballad, which at one time gave fairly literal accounts of famous matches. At half-past two, the whistle blew, and the ball it was thrown in, 
The hero Morphy seized it, and he kicked it with the wind. Then there was the ballad singer who used to sing, The catching and the kicking was marvellous for to see. After the ballad came the local paper, where we were all Trojans in defence and wizards in attack. I once got a lot of kudos from a report which described me as incisive around goal. No one knew the meaning of the word incisive, but it sounded good. These reminiscences have been inspired by a Dublin barman, a native of my own district, who said to me, I often wonder you never wrote about the time you were playing football for the Grattans, eh? Do you mind the Sunday we played just below in Jackie's Meadow beside the river, eh? And Big Huey on the sideline with an ash plant ready to cut the head off here, a man that came within a mile of him, eh? Vaguely. Ah, you must remember, weren't you playing that day? Then it came back. She was a brave mother who willingly allowed her son to play football. Most mothers would be out of their minds, worried over their sons on the playing fields, never knowing he'd come back to her a limiter for life. Manny's the good man the same football put an end to. How I remember the poor Poochie Maguire that got the boot in the bottom of the belly and never over it. If you take a fool's advice you never took, you'd leave the football alone. Ah, things have changed since them days. That'll do you now. What about young Kiernan of Cross that was killed in Cavan? As soon as the player come home, he was scrutinised by his mother. She had sharp eyes as a rule and was able to see the deep cut over his eye which he had been trying to conceal with a lock of hair. You got a kick? Ah, it's only a little thing. Little thing? Ah, God knows it's me that's the unfortunate woman. I heard the roaring down there in that stony meadow of Jackie's. Now, I didn't know what minute you'd be brought home to me half dead. But did you win itself? A draw. I you were never able for Dunnock mine, with all your bumming. Get the black porringer from under the stairs and put them pair of eggs in it. No, never during the suit we use fit to bait Dunnock mine. Only for the referee. Ah, only for something, the sky'd fall. Yes, only for something, the sky'd fall. For all this, my imagination finds difficulty in focusing on this period, and one should always trust the imagination to light up vital things. All sporting subjects are superficial. The emotion is a momentary puff of gas, not an experience. And I know now why I have been unable to write about it at length. I have noted that in Ulysses, that compendium of commonplace emotions and goings-on, only the punter speculating on the result of the Ascot Gold Cup comes into the theme. So sport can't have been very vital... For Joyce had a mind like a sponge. But all these opinions of mine are barren. It's none of my business, and one should always try to extract the comedy from life and not see it moralizingly. Hello. Hello. How are you after the game last Sunday? Uh, a stiff leg. <laughs> you know what that means. You're right. Can't sit down without the legs straight out in front. Oh, it's a shocking bloody nuisance. We were a very bad luck. Sure, Paddy Keegan had an open goal in front of him and he shot 40 yards wide. The man that had missed that had missed the parish if he fired at the chapel. Hey, bad, all right. Desperate. It's a pity trainer wasn't playing. You know, the, the mother wouldn't let him. So the two men on opposite sides of a stone fence talk on. My brother was telling me how one lovely Sunday morning he was taking a stroll outside San Francisco on the edge of the Pacific when he saw, hurrying with little bundles under their oxters, men of a rural Irish complex. 
Some time later, he came upon a Gaelic football match in progress. Everything was as at home. There were the men running up and down the unpaled sideline, slicing at the toes which encroached with hurlies and crying, Keep back there now! Keep back there now! And all around the pitch, the familiar battle cries of the Dalcassians were to be heard. Good your man! Fall into him! Not a man of them had ever left home, and the mysterious Pacific was just a bog hole, gurgling with eels and frogs. Yes, there was something queer and wonderful about the sight, or the thought. The Nenniskeen come on the field, and they were stuffed with pride. They fell before the fontanoise, like grass before a scythe. Yes, is he, they fell before the fontanoise, like grass before a scythe. There's much love in these early recollections, yet sometimes there's a note of anger and despair, for his love affair with Monaghan was one of love-hate. O oh, stony grey soil of Monaghan, the laugh from my love you thieved. You took the gay child of my passion and gave me your clod conceived. You clogged the feet of my boyhood, and I believed that my stumble had the poise and stride of Apollo and his voice my thick-tongued mumble. You told me the plough was immortal. O oh, green, life-conquering plough, your mandrel strained, your coulter blunted in the smooth leaf-field of my brow. You sang on steaming dunghills a song of cowards' brood. You perfumed my clothes with weaselits, you fed me on swinish food. You flung a ditch on my vision of beauty, love, and truth. O oh, stony grey soil of Monaghan, you burgled my bank of youth. Lost the long hours of pleasure, all the women that love young men. Oh, can I still stroke the monster's back, or write with unpoisoned pen his name in these lonely verses, or mention the dark fields where the first gay flight of my lyric got caught in a peasant's prayer? Mullahincha, Drummeril, Black Shanko, wherever I turn I see... In the stony grey soil of Monaghan, dead loves that were born for me. Monaghan is the country of Kavanagh's imagination, but Dublin is the first city. He found there many things, both great and venal, and he found love, both sacred and profane. Here is a love song that can be sung. On Raglan Road, on an autumn day, I met her first and knew that her dark hair would weave a snare that I might one day rue. I saw the danger, yet I walked along the enchanted way. And I said, let grief be a fallen leaf at the dawning of the day. On Grafton Street in November we tripped lightly along the ledge of the deep ravine where can be seen the worth of passion's pledge. The Queen of Hearts still making tarts, and I not making hay. 
Oh, I loved too much, and by such, by such, is happiness thrown away. I gave her gifts of the mind, I gave her the secret sign that's known to the artists who have known the true gods of sound and stone and word and tint. I did not stint, for I gave her poems to say. With her own name there and her own dark hair Like clouds over fields of May On a quiet street where all ghosts meet I see her walking now Away from me so horridly my reason must allow that I had wooed not as I should a creature made of clay. When the angel woos the clay, he'd lose his wings at the dawn of day. In the warm summer of 1955, after a serious illness, he lay by the waters of the canal and wrote this. Leafy with love banks and the green waters of the canal, pouring redemption for me that I do the will of God, wallow in the habitual, the banal, grow with nature again as before I grew. And so in this moment of great daring, he says himself, I became a poet. He says... Except for brief moments of my very early years, I had not been a poet. The poems in A Soul for Sale are not poetry, and neither is The Great Hunger. There are some queer and terrible things in The Great Hunger, but it lacks the nobility and repose of poetry. The trouble is that there are so few who would know a poem from a hole in the ground. It's possible, on the other hand, to recognise a poet, for the animal is recognisable. The main feature about a poet, if you ever happen to meet one, and that's a remote chance, for I can't be everywhere at the one time, the main feature is his humorosity. Any touch of boringness, and you're in the wrong shop. Beautiful women, I'm glad to say, are capable of recognising the best. Recently, a man was presented to me as being a great poet. He wrote in Irish. I expressed my doubts, and the introducer said, how can you tell when you don't know the language? Well, that was a sore one, but I was able for it. I said, I can't bawl like a cow but I'd know a cow if I saw one. That a poet is born, not made, is well known, but this does not mean that he was a poet the day he was physically born. For many a good-looking year, I wrought hard at versing, but I would say that, as a poet, I was born in and about 1955, the place of my birth being the banks of the Grand Canal. Oh, commemorate me where there is water. Canal water, preferably. So stilly, greeny at the heart of summer. Brother, commemorate me thus, beautifully. Whereby a lock niagarously roars the falls for those who sit in the tremendous silence of mid-July. No one will speak in prose who finds his way to these Parnassian islands. A swan goes by, head low, with many apologies. 
Fantastic light looks through the eyes of bridges. And look, a barge comes, bringing from Athai and other far-flung towns mythologies. Oh, commemorate me with no hero courageous tomb, just a canal bank seat for the passerby. Dublin was a beleaguered city during the Hitler Wars, but a lately arrived poet might reasonably have expected a future. Oh, I had a future, a future. Gods of the imagination bring back to life the personality of those streets, not any streets, but the streets of 1940. Give the quarter-seeing eyes I looked out of, the animal-remembering mind, the fog through which I walked towards the mirage that was my future. The women I was to meet, they were nowhere within sight. And then the pathos of the blind soul, how without knowing stands in its own kingdom. Bring me a small detail, how I felt about money, not frantic as later. There was the future. Show me the stretcher bed I slept on in a room on Drumcondra Road. Let John Betjeman call for me in a car. It is summer, and the eerie beat of madness in Europe trembles the wings of the butterflies along the canal. Oh, I had a future. But as he was to say himself later, living entirely from writing cannot be done by anyone who wants to write seriously, for... Posterity has not printed its banknotes yet. Dublin in the 40s was a Dublin of writers, artists, poet tasters and their favourite pubs. The beery pub talk and the only two solid flesh was an environment from which a young poet with immortal yearnings might well recoil. He has left us a marvellously savage piece of satire to remember the bar intellectuals of those bygone days. In the corner of a Dublin pub, this party opens... Blubba blub, paddy whiskey, rum and gin, paddy three sheets in the wind, paddy of the Celtic mist, paddy Connemara West, Chestertonian paddy frog croaking nightly in the bog. All the paddies having fun since Yeats handed in his gun. Every man completely blind to the truth about his mind. In their middle sits a fellow, aged about sixty, bland and mellow. Saintly, silvery locks of hair, quiet-voiced as monk at prayer. Every paddy's eye is glazed on this fellow, mouths amazed, drinking all his words of praise. Oh, comic muse, descend to see the devil mediocrity, for that is the devil sitting there, actually Lucifer. He has written many Catholic novels, none of which mention devils, daring men, beautiful women, Nothing about muck or midden, wholesome atmosphere. Why must so-called artists deal with lust? About the devil's dark intentions, there are some serious misconceptions. The devil is supposed to be a nasty man entirely, horned and hooved and fearful gory. That's his own invented story. The truth, in fact, is the reverse. He does not know a single curse. His forte's praise for what is dead, Pegasus's Munning's bread. Far and near he screws his eyes in search of what will never rise. Souls that are fusty, safe and dim, these are the geniuses of the land to him. Most generous tempered of the gods, he listens to the vilest odes. Aye, and not just idle praise, for these the devil highly pays. 
And the crowds for culture cheer and cheer. A modern Medici is here. Never more can it be said that Irish poets are not fed. The boys go wild and toast the Joker, the master of the mediocre. A great renaissance is underway. You can hear the devil say, as into our pub comes a new arrival, a man who looks the conventional devil. This is Paddy Conscience. This is Stephen Dedalus. This is Yeats who ranted to knave and fool before he knew. This is Sean O'Casey saying, fare thee well to Inish Fallon. He stands on the perimeter of the crowd, half drunk to show that he's not proud, but willing, given half a chance, to play the game with any dunce. He wears a beaten, bedraggled pose to put the devil at his ease. But Lucifer sees through the pose of drunken talk and dirty clothes. The casual word that drops by chance denotes a dangerous arrogance, still sober and alive enough to blast this world with a puff. Every paddy sitting there pops up like a startled hare, loud ignoring village face. This behaviour's a disgrace. A savage intruding on our Monday's colloquy on trochees, spondies, and whether Paddy Mr. Frog is the greatest singer of the bog. Hypodermics, sourpiss loaded, are squirted at our foolish poet. The devil sips his glass of plain and takes up his theme again. My suggestion is for a large bounty for the best poet in each county. How many poems missed can you spare for my new anthology of Clare? Ten guineas per poem is fair, but they must definitely be Clare. Some lyrics in your recent volume were influenced by Roscommon. I'm a Clare man more than mist. Yes, but essentially a novelist. Essentially a man of prose, as any whole-time verse man knows. I think that Paddy Connemara West is worth twenty guineas at least. I agree, Frog. West is one of the great singers of the bog. I'll give him twenty guineas so. Oh, oh, oh. Conscience is going mad, tearing, raving, using bad language in the bar where the bards of Ireland are. Now, peace again. They've chucked him out. Paddy Frog leaves down his stout, clenches his chubby grocer's fist, says, I disagree with Mist that Paddy Connemara West is inferior to Stevens at his best. A Catholic and Gaelic poet. His last group of poems show it. Paddy Connemara gets my vote as the expressor of the Catholic note. His pious feeling for the body and rejection of the shoddy mystical cloak that conscience trails places him among the greatest of Gaels. In my last radio talk, I drew attention to this froggish view. We must bring out a collected edition. The money's a minor consideration. What most we want to bring success is an end to petty bitterness. No more slashing notices in the press, but something broadly generous. We want an openness of heart. No Olympian critics saying, Depart from me, ye car corset pack of fools. Only poet tasters form schools. You remember Paddy Conscience. Count me out at Mummer's rantings. Here, news has just come in that Paddy Conscience lost his latest body. Dead in Paris. The devil sighs. Shocking news. I much admired all his views. A man of genius. Generous, kind, not a destructive idea in his mind. My dearest friend, let's do him proud. 
our wives will make a green silk shroud to weave him in. The Emerald Isle must bury him in tourist style. A broadcast on his work might be a reading of his poetry. The government will give a grant to build a worthy monument. I know the minister involved. The cost will readily be halved. Before we part, let's make a date to meet tomorrow night at eight to make the final funeral plans. For this will be Ireland seen by France. This is the window of our shop. Paddy Mist might do an appreciation of the general culture of an Irish funeral. All the Paddies rise and hurry home to write the inside story of their friendship for the late genius who was surely great. Recall his technical innovations, his domestic life, his patience, with humblest aspirant on the literary bent. All his hunger was imagined. Never was a falser legend. He could make, whenever he chose, a fortune out of verse or prose. Irish men, spiritual, ran from racetracks at his spell, left the beds of jockeys, actors. These may be considered factors. The groups dispersed. The devil stays, some discontent in his face. Already he can see another conscience coming on to bother Ireland with muck and anger, ready again to die of hunger, condemnatory and uncivil. What a future for a devil. In Dublin, Pembroke, Wellington, Raglan and Waterloo roads, Bagatonia as they said, replace for the poetic and indeed the real purpose the little lanes of Shankerduff and Mucker. Through the jungle of Pembroke Road, I have dragged myself in terror, listening to the lions of frustration roar, the anguish of beasts that have had their dinner and found there was something inside gnawing away unsatisfied. As far as Ballsbridge, I walked in wonder, down Clyde to Waterloo, watching the natives pulling the jungle grass of convention to cover the nude barbaric buttocks where tail stumps showed when reason lit up the road. On Bagot Street Bridge they screeched, then dived out of my sight into pools of blackest porter till half past ten of the jungle night the bubbles came up with toxic smell from frustration's holy well. His friend John Betjeman lived in Dublin during the war years, and to celebrate the occasion of his daughter's first birthday, Kavanagh wrote these lines. Candida is one today. What is there that one can say? One is where the race begins, or the sum that counts our sins. But the mark time makes, tomorrow shapes the cross of joy or sorrow. Candida is one today. What is there for me to say? On the day that she was one, there were apples in the sun, and the fields long wet with rain, crumply in dry winds again. Candida is one, and I wish her lots and lots of joy. She, the nursling of September, like a war she won't remember. Candida is one today, and there's nothing more to say. Another happy occasion was celebrated. This time, the object of admiration was a day in spring, and the purpose, as we shall hear, was to cheer up doleful bards in particular, but everyone in general. Oh, come all ye tragic poets and sing a stave with me. Give over T.S. Eliot and also W.B. 
We'll sing our way through Stephen's Green, where March has never found in the growing grass a cadence of the verse of Ezra Pound. The university girls are like tulip bulbs behind, more luxurious than ever from Holland was consigned. Those bulbs will shortly break in flower, rayon, silk and cotton, and our verbal constipation will be totally forgotten. Philosophy's a graveyard. Only dead men analyse the reason for existence. Come all you solemn boys from out your dictionary world and literary gloom. Kafka's mad, Picasso's sad, in despair's confining room. Oh, come all darling poets and try to look more happy. Forget about sexology as you gossip in the cafe. Forget about the books you've read and the inbred verses there. Forget about the Kinsey report and take a mouthful of air. The world began this morning, God-dreamt and full of birds. The fashion shops were glorious with a new collection of words. And love was practising phrases in young balladry. Ten thousand years must pass before the birth of psychology. Oh, come all ye gallant poets... To know it doesn't matter is imagination's message. Break out, but do not scatter. Ordinary things wear lovely wings. The peacock's body's common. Oh, come all ye youthful poets and try to be more human. The 1950s were the beginnings of the third period and were a time of stock-taking and what can only be described as agonising reappraisal. One of the truly great poems and one most indicative of that period was Auditor's Inn. And it's not, as you might think, an ode to a tavern of compliant listeners. There is only one N in this inn. The problem that confronts me here is to be eloquent, yet sincere. Let myself rip and not go phony in an inflated testimony. Is verse an entertainment only? Or is it a profound and holy faith that cries the inner history of the failure of man's mission? Should it be my job to mention precisely how I chance to fail through a cursed ideal? Right down here, he knew what he wanted. Evilest knowledge ever haunted man when he can picture clear just what he is searching for. A car, a big suburban house half-secret that he might not lose the wild attraction of the poor, but proud, the fanatic lure for women of the poet's way, and diabolic underlay. The gun of pride can bring them down at twenty paces in the town. For what? The tragedy is this. Pride's gunman hesitates to kiss. A romantic Rasputin praying at the heart of sin. He cannot differentiate, say, if he does not want to take from moral motives or because nature has ideal in her laws. But to get down to the factual, you are not homosexual, and yet you live without a wife, a most disorganised sort of life. You've not even bred illegitimates, a lonely lecher whom the fates, by a financial trick, castrates. You're capable of an intense love, that is experience. Remember how your heart was moved and youth's eternity was proved when you saw a young girl going to Mass on a weekday morning as you yourself used to go down to the church from Edenham O. 
your imagination still enthuses over the dandelions that Willie Hughes's. And these are equally valid for urban epic, a peasant ballad. Not mere memory, but the real, poised in the poet's commonweal. And you must take yourself in hand and dig and ditch your authentic land. Wake up, wake up and compromise on the non-essential sides. Love's round you in a rapturous bevy, but you are bankrupt by the levy imposed upon the ideal. Her Cheshire cat smile surmounts the wall. She smiles, wolf, wolf, come be my lover. Unreal, you find, and yet you never catch on. One cannot but feel sorry, for the ideal is purgatory. Yet do not be too much dismayed. It's on your hand, the humble trade of versing that can easily restore your equanimity and lay the loony ghosts that goad the savages of Pembroke Road. Bow down here and thank your God. After the prayer, I am ready to enter my heart, indifferent to the props of a reputation, some feeble sallies of a peasant plantation, the rotten shafts of a remembered cart holding up the conscious crust of art. No quiet corner here for contemplation, no roots of faith to give an angry passion validity. I, at the bottom, will start Try to ignore the shame-reflecting eyes of worshippers who made their god too tall. To share their food or do the non-stupendous they gave him for exploring empty skies instead of a little room where he might write for men too real to live by vapid legends. Away, away, away on wings like Joyce's. Mother Earth is putting my brand new clothes in order. Praying, she says that I no more ignore her. Yellow buttons she found in fields at bargain prices. Kelly's big bush for a buttonhole. Surprises in every pocket. The stress at Connolly's corner. Myself at Anavaki on Armagh border. Or calm and collected in a carving crisis. Not sad at all as I float away, away, with mother keeping me to the vernacular. I have a home to return to now. O oh, blessing for the return in departure. Somewhere to stay doesn't matter. What is distressing is walking eagerly to go nowhere in particular. From the sour soil of a town where all roots canker, I turn away to where the self reposes, the placeless heaven that's under all our noses, where we're shut off from all the barren anger, no time for self-pitying melodrama, a million instincts know no other uses than all day long to feed and charm the muses till they become pure positive. O oh, hunger, where all have mouths of desire and none is willing to be eaten, I am so glad to come accidentally upon myself at the end of a tortuous road and have learned with surprise that God, unworshipped, withers to the futile one. The other outstanding poem of those later years he called Prelude. The great period of creativity was drawing to a close. The remaining years would be a time of diminishing activity, a coda, a time not so much for living as for dying. 
Give us another poem, he said, or they will think your muse is dead. Another middle-aged departure of Apollo from the trade of Archer. Bring out a book as soon as you can to let them see you're a living man whose comic spirit is untamed, though sadness for a little claimed the precedence. And tentative you pulled your punch and wondered if old cunning silence might not be a better bet than poetry. You have not got the countenance to hold the angle of pretense, that angry, bitter look for one who knows that art's a kind of fun, that all true poems laugh inwardly out of grief-born intensity. Dullness alone can get you beat, and so can humour's counterfeit. You have not got a chance with fraud, and might as well be true to God. Then link your laughter out of doors, in sunlight, past the sick-faced whores who chant the praise of love that isn't, and bring their bastards to be christened at phony founts by bogus priests, with rites mugged up by journalists. Walk past professors looking serious, fondling an unpublished thesis. A child, my child, my darling son, some poets of 1901. Note well the face profoundly grave. An empty mind can house a knave. Be careful to show no defiance. They've made pretense into a science. Card sharpers of the art committee working all the provincial cities, they cry eccentric if they hear a voice that seems at all sincere. Fold up their table and their gear and with the money disappear. But satire is unfruitful prayer. Only wild shoots of pity there. And you must go inland and be lost in compassion's ecstasy where suffering soars in summer air. The millstone has become a star. Count then your blessings. Hold in mind all that has loved you or been kind. Those women on their mercy missions, rescue work with kiss or kitchens, perceiving through the comic veil the poet's spirit in travail. Gather the bits of road that were not gravel to the traveller, but eternal lanes of joy in which no man who walks can die. Bring in the particular trees that caught you in their mysteries, and love again the weeds that grew somewhere specially for you. Collect the river and the stream that flashed upon a pensive theme and a positive world make, a world man's world cannot shake. And do not lose love's resolution, though face to face with destitution. If platitude should claim a place, do not denounce his humble face. His sentiments are well-intentioned. He has a part in the larger legend. So now, my gentle tiger, burning in the forest of no yearning, walk on serenely, do not mind that promised land you thought to find, where the worldly wise and rich take over the mundane problems of the lore. Ignore power's schismatic sect, lovers alone, lovers protect. Patrick Kavanagh is gone from us forever. All that remains of him lies in a little churchyard in Inishkeen. A seat by the canal in Dublin commemorates him. Inishkeen and Bagot Street Bridge, the poles of his life, the twin ironies by which great saints are made, the agonising pincer jaws of heaven. As he would have said himself, the account is closed. But perhaps, like Molly Malone, his ghost will walk in the memory-crowded roads of Bagatonia. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Bagot Street, 
and what I was like to know. Oh, he was a queer one, followed all the dido. He was a queer one, I tell you. My great-grandmother knew him well. He asked her to come and call on him in his flat, and she giggled at the thought of a young girl's lovely form. Oh, he was dangerous, followed all the dido. He was dangerous, I tell you. On Pembroke Road, look out for my ghost. Dishevelled with shoes untied. Playing through the railings with little children, whose children have long since died. Oh, he was a nice man, followed all the dido. He was a nice man, I tell you. Go into a pub and listen well, if my voice still echoes there. Ask the men what their grandsires taught, and tell them to answer fair. Oh, he was eccentric, followed all the dido. He was eccentric, I tell you. He had the knack of making men feel as small as they really were, which meant as great as God had made them. But as males, they disliked his heir. Oh, he was a proud one, followed all the dido. He was a proud one, I tell you. If ever you go to Dublin town, in a hundred years or so, sniff for my personality, is it vanity's vapour now? Oh, he was a vain one, followed all the dido. He was a vain one, I tell you. I saw his name with a hundred others in a book in the library. It said he had never fully achieved his potentiality. Oh, he was slothful, followed all the dido. He was slothful, I tell you. He knew that posterity has no use for anything but the soul. The lines that speak, the passionate heart, the spirit that lives alone. Oh, he was a lone one, followed all the dido. Yet he lived happily, I tell you. That was From Inish Keen to Baggett Street Bridge, a Patrick Kavanagh recital arranged and produced by John Ryan. The readers were Neil Thobeen, Pat Laid, Donald McCann, Aideen O'Kelly, Ronnie Walsh and Pat Laffin. The programme was presented by PJ O'Connor. <laughs>